Thank you, Jonas, for your participation and worship tonight, and also for all the other things that you have helped us out with, with your internship. It's been a delight to have you here. And this is next week, this week is your last week, right? I think so. Okay, so we'll miss you, but thank you for participating. And I encourage you to keep your Bibles handy tonight. We will look at different paths, different parts of Psalm 46, and uh, if you're a person who likes to look back at that, tonight will be one of those nights. On September 11, 2001, the day that we now call 9-11, the United States was attacked by the Islamic group Al-Qaeda. Nineteen militants, as they carried out a series of plane hijackings and suicide attacks, created the deadliest terrorist attack ever on American soil. As most of us are well aware, the attacks on New York City and Washington, D.C. caused extensive destruction, including the deaths of nearly 3,000 people. Police and fire departments were especially hard hit. Hundreds had rushed to the scenes in New York City, to the Twin Towers, and more than 400 police officers and firefighters were killed. In the midst of this tragedy, many people also rushed to houses of worship to seek God and to find peace and comfort in the midst of the chaos. Surveys of American churches for that Sunday following the attack found that the most commonly preached passage that day was the one that Jonas just read, Psalm 46. Change mountains falling into the heart of the sea into falling skyscrapers? And you can see why so many ministers were led to that passage on that grim Sunday. This psalm, traditionally ascribed to the sons of Korah, the Levitical choir appointed by David to serve in the temple liturgy, is a strong confession of faith, one that is very appropriate during challenging times, during times of great fear and upheaval. In fact, it is said of Martin Luther that when he heard of any discouraging news, he would say, come, Let us sing the 46th psalm. The psalm is divided into three stanzas. And the first stanza, verses 1 through 3, was likely sung by the people in Jerusalem or the Levitical choir. We see evidence in that first stanza of the turmoil that can occur in nature. The passage tells us that Earthquakes come, rumbling and rattling, breaking things apart, and mountains fall into the heart of the sea. And the waters roar and foam, much like we might see in a whitewater rafting expedition. And the mountains tremble as the waters surge up against them, perhaps in something like a tidal wave. Are all these things to be taken literally? Probably not. There is certainly some hyperbole going on here. 
some exaggeration. In the day when this was likely written, mountains did not fall into the heart of the sea or quake with their surging. Today, because of things like bombs, things like that can happen, but not in those days. Why then the exaggeration? Perhaps the imagery is to symbolize the great threats that Israel experienced at that time from their enemy countries. Or maybe the reason is to consider the problems in our world that seem overwhelming to us and then contrast them with our God who is greater than all of it. We see more conflict if you look at the second and third stanzas of the psalm, verses 4 to 6 and 8 to 10, sections that were likely sung by the Levitical leader of the choir. This time, the turmoil is not in nature, but in nations. Political and military strife are evident as we read of warfare involving bows and spears, as well as carts and wagons, which is listed as shields in our translation. The nations are in chaos, and their kingdoms are crumbling. Unfortunately, it was very common at that time for cities to be besieged, to get sacked, and for enemies to get through its walls and overtake them. One would think, or one would at least hope, that thousands of years after the writing of this psalm, the turmoil between and within nations would have subsided. But in our world, populated by sinful human beings that we are, conflict continues. We see uproar even in our own city commission meetings, where meetings repeatedly have had to end early because irate individuals insist on yelling and screaming during the public comment times. We see it in, in our own nation when peaceful protests, which are seem to be coming more common today, do not always remain peaceful. And perhaps even more common today yet, conflict goes on behind the scenes, we might say, as people easily shoot barbs at each other through things like texts and social media, all platforms where face-to-face contact can be avoided. The upheaval continues around the world as well. In Ethiopia, for example, tension between clashing political parties escalated into a violent civil war beginning in November 2020. The violence spilled over into neighboring nations, Sudan and Somalia, and troops were even sent in from neighboring country Eritrea. In Afghanistan, the Taliban advanced across the country, capturing the, the capital city of Kabul and leaving many to flee the country, 
Some of you probably remember seeing images of that on the news. And then there's Ukraine, who continues to suffer devastating loss, both physical and human, because of the evil decisions by leaders in Russia. Some estimate that some six million people, six million Ukrainians, are now refugees in bordering countries, having left their houses, their schools, their jobs, their churches. And some say that over seven million have been displaced inside the country, fleeing from attacks and hiding in makeshift bomb shelters. When we consider all the darkness in our communities and in our nation and around the world, what are we to do? One of those things is to remember that God has the power to do all things. This is evident if you look at verses 8 and 9 of the text, where we're invited to come and see what the Lord has done. He has the ability to bring an end to war, to break the bow and to shatter the spear, to burn the carts and wagons. When we think of the war in Ukraine, we can say he has the ability to make missiles malfunction, to prevent artillery shells from exploding, and to make tanks break down. And those are not bad things to pray when we consider the conflict in Ukraine and in other parts of the world where war continues. It's also good and right to pray for a change of heart in leaders, both in Russia and around the world, that they would surrender their lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's good and right to pray for peace and civility in meetings, during protests, and on social media. It's good and right to pray in faith, believing that God will act in his way and in his time. But what does God do in the meantime as we wait, as we continue to live our lives in the midst of challenging times. In verses 4 and 5, we read these words, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Notice, if you will, the contrast between the water imagery in those verses and the verse just before them. In verse 3, it says the waters roar, crash, and foam. In the worldview, during the time that this psalm was written, the sea was seen as a hostile threat a threat that could cause instability at any time. Is that what we see in verse 4? Not at all. The water in verse 4 
is a river of grace. It is God's river, whose streams bring joy and blessing even amidst the turmoil of life. In fact, when an earthly city back then had a river running through it with its water supply and its fish for food, it was harder for the invading city to bring it down. Behind me are the banners we use during the growing season at church, ordinary time we call it, the season between Pentecost and Advent. And if you look at those banners, you notice the river that's flowing. It begins over here in the left banner, and it continues on into the right one, widening and growing as it flows. And in between those banners, in between the river, is our window. And of course, in that window, there are many images, many people in that window. But notice who's up at the top, very top of it. It's Jesus. Is it dying Jesus on the cross? No, it's not. Is it buried Jesus in the tomb? No, it's not. It's ascended Jesus. It's triumphant Jesus, the one who rules and reigns at the Father's right hand, the one who is greater than all the darkness in this world, the one who sends forth his river of grace. And where does that river flow? Verse 4 also tells us that it flows to where God resides, to where he lives, to where he dwells. We know that God's dwelling in time and space has never been fixed and final. In the Old Testament, the location was a movable tabernacle, then a shrine at Shiloh, and finally the temple at Jerusalem, which is referred to in this psalm. If we go to the New Testament, God dwells in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in Colossians 1, verse 19, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. What about today, though? Where does God dwell today? First of all, he resides in heaven, the place he has prepared for all those who trust him as Savior and Lord One of our homebound members had been thinking about this a lot. And when I asked her multiple times how I could pray for her, one of her answers was, would you pray that God would take me home? She had lived faithfully, serving God and trusting him each day, yet health concerns continued to mount 
And she was ready to end life on this earth and enter into the presence of her Savior, the place where the Most High dwells. What a tremendous blessing for her. She was given that blessing last month. And for all of us who know Jesus as Savior and Lord, to dwell in his presence forever. As we live our lives and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, that indeed gives us great comfort. However, is that the only source of comfort as we live our lives? No, it's not. Because that is not the only place that God dwells today. Again, going to the Apostle Paul, we hear these words that he prayed for the church at Ephesus. He said, I pray that out of his, God's glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Did you catch that? That Christ, God, dwells in our hearts, in my hearts, in your hearts. Where does God live, reside, and dwell each and every day? He dwells in us. And if that wasn't enough evidence for where he lives, we also read Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. There he writes, Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? God, in the form of the Holy Spirit, resides in each one of us as we live our lives. It is because of this wonderful truth that we can believe and cherish the words of this psalm. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. And where is he present? Look at the psalm's refrain that we see in verse 7 and verse 11. The Lord Almighty is present with us. That truth is what John Solovey was reminded of recently. John serves as a chaplain with the rapid response team of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. These are teams of people who are trained for grief ministry and then deployed out to provide emotional and spiritual support in times of trouble times caused by man-made or by natural disasters. They recently sent a team out to Uvalde, Texas for the school shooting there. They were in Michigan a few years back in Midlands when the dams burst and the floodwaters rushed in in that area. Four years ago, at the age of 70, John decided to study Russian so he could read a journal written in the Slavic language by his grandfather, who had immigrated to the United States from Belarus. 
That was his intent. Study Russian so he could read the journal. But, as we often know, God has other plans at times. And God had other plans for his Russian language skills. When he was deployed by the rapid response team, where was he sent? Where did God send him? Ukraine. And there he found himself conversing with two Russian-speaking Ukrainian patients inside a Samaritan's Purse field hospital tent in Lviv. As John talked and prayed in Russian with two men several times a day, he watched as smiles began to appear on their faces, to break through their stoic, solemn faces. God's river of grace broke through their hearts, and eventually both accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They even began volunteering to lead the group prayer time at the hospital. These men realized, as did John, that despite the chaotic, war-torn situation in Ukraine, God was still with them, that his river of grace was flowing an ever-present help in times of trouble. Friends, what are the issues that weigh upon your hearts tonight? You fill in the blank what they are. Is it grief that is raw? Health concerns that persist? Is it tension in your family that seems to go on and on? Or maybe it's something else. There is a river that flows to each one of you with God's mercy and grace. Are there people you know who are facing challenging situations in their life? Maybe these people are believers. Maybe, like the two men in Ukraine, they're not. How can God use you to bring to them the river that flows with God's mercy and grace. As we live our lives, even in challenging times, take heart, my dear friends, because that river of grace never stops flowing from God's throne. Amen. Would you join me in prayer, please? Heavenly Father, I pray for the people who are gathered in this sanctuary tonight and the people who are watching online. Father, you know what is weighing upon their hearts. And I pray that your river, your river would flow to them and show them your mercy and grace. And Father, I pray that you would use us as your people to help be a conduit to allow that river of grace to flow to others who are also in need. 
Father, use us by your Spirit. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.